0: This is Daniel Pink. You're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: And welcome, everybody, to our inaugural episode of Radio Free Leader. Now, we've been doing this podcast for six years already, and we decided to change the name for a bunch of different reasons. And in fact, if you're subscribed to my newsletter, you got a bunch of those reasons ahead of time. Suffice it to say, I've always been fascinated with Radio Free Europe, the concept of it, and the R.E.M. song, And so the idea that Radio Free Europe was used to liberate people behind the Iron Curtain, feed them positive information, and ultimately tear down the wall between the free world and the communist world, in a sense, that's what we're trying to do with the podcast, Radio Free Leader. We're trying to liberate leadership and tear down the walls between the ivory tower and the corner office so that we can excel in leadership, innovation, and in strategy. I've got some awesome things planned for you. Our very first episode of the podcast features none other than Daniel Pink. Dan was actually the very first person to agree to be on my podcast way back when it was called Leader Lab. He was the second episode to air, first person to agree to that. That's a long story. I'll spare you of it. But Dan is an amazing person. He is an author of five books, many of which debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. He's got one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. And he's a brilliant mind when it comes to synthesizing evidence-based research in social science. And so, of course, he would be the perfect person to have as the very first guest. So I'm excited to share that interview with you. Before I do that, I want to encourage you, if this is the very first time you are listening to this podcast, well, what an amazing first episode to listen to. Take a minute and head over to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this podcast and go ahead and click subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Or if you're listening on your phone and you don't want to do that, you can text radio free to 33444. That's radio free, all one word to 33444. And I will send you every episode as we have it via email. So you'll never miss out on an episode. You'll also get some awesome, cool resources and some amazing bonuses for being a part of that email newsletter. So again, that's radio free to 33444. All right. Without further ado, I want to bring you what was one of my favorite episodes ever to record. This would be the fourth time I've gotten to interview Daniel Pink, and every time it's amazing. I end up taking more notes on what he's saying than the little show notes that we have to go along with the episode. So... I ended up lost in, in the interview, and I actually loved editing it because I got to re-listen to all of his great content. We talk about a variety of things, from career advice, to leadership lessons for those who are guiding others, others' careers, to even what Dan's working on right now. So for all that and more, without further ado, check out our interview with Daniel Pink. So who are you and what do you do? Uh,
0: I am... Daniel pink and what do I do? Generally, I for the last twenty years I've been writing books, um, but I get at a deeper level. Um, I'm trying to lead a decent life and understand the world a little bit more deeply.
1: Hmm, interesting. I mean, I I actually see that I guess in the the common theme. It's kind of funny actually. I like to play like I don't know what you would call it. Clue train, I guess. I like to I like to try hmm. and guess what the unifying theme or the bridge from your book to book was. Right. And I think the unifying thread is always. I mean, they're always obviously about work, and they're about sort of the empirical what research tells us about work that we don't already know. Mm-hmm. But then you can also see, like, I always saw a step from drive to sell as human made perfect sense, right? And then even whole new mind to drive makes perfect sense. And then Johnny Bunko is just brilliant, by the way. So that Why, you know, thank you. just a beautiful detour. But yeah, um, yeah, but I see that trying to make sort of the the world and life uh, a little bit better through research as as kind of a common thread.
0: Okay, that's a that's a very generous explanation. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of these things, it, it's, it goes back to what Steve Jobs said at his Stanford commencement 10 years ago, which is that a lot of the things that we do in life, a lot of the steps that we take, a lot of the um, islands we land on, that pattern, that path, makes sense only in retrospect. And I think that's a different way, that, so, so I think there are different ways of looking at it. What, I, I Believe me, I have no gra- I had no grand plan, no grand strategy, no strategic roadmap to do a certain to do this book then that book then that book. Not even close. Uh, but maybe because we human beings like to force patterns on ra- random events, maybe that they make sense in retrospect.
1: Because I and granted, I'm only on my sophomore book, so I'm relatively new at all of this. In fact, I think that was the theme of the last time we talked was you just telling me how new I was at all of this. Okay. Um, I always tend to feel like... And how like, new I am, too. Well, okay. Sort of, All right. Yeah. Fair. But I always feel like, like the idea, at least for the second book that I wrote, the idea kind of came while writing the first one. You sort of yeah. mull it over. I, and, know, I
0: think there's something to that. I think there's something to that. I, I, think, that, um, that I think that the best writers, um, particularly I, of any kind, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I think that the, the engine that, that, that drives a lot of really good writers is curiosity. And so if you go and explore a particular topic, a particular body of work, um, inevitably that's going to make you curious about something either inside of that or, or more likely adjacent to it. So you're exactly right. So you write a whole new mind and say, oh, wait a second, the skills that people need are shifting from this one basket of logical linear spreadsheet SAT skills to something more artistic, empathic, big picture and inventive. And inevitably, you you ask a question, or even better, you get asked the question, okay, if this is right, how do you motivate people to do that kind of stuff? And that's what drove me to some of the research on motivation. When it came to motivation in the book Drive, about the science of motivation, you lay out that evidence, you lay out those arguments, you try to assemble those takeaways, and you get a question. One of the questions, literally, I think from the first day that the book came out was, oh, this is interesting. What about sales? And that helped catalyze the book about, you know, the catalyze the book to sell as human. So I do think there is that kind of connective tissue there, but it, happen, it, it, it doesn't happen in the way that I think a lot of people um, think happen, which is that, oh, you have this grand strategy and you're, you're moving these chess pieces in this very strategic way. I mean, maybe some people do that, but I sure don't.
1: Well, and I think, I mean, that to me reminds me of a lot of what I remember from, from Johnny Bunko and broader career, right? We try and do the same thing where we think we have a five-year plan, et cetera. I always go back to, I don't know if you've ever seen Big Daddy, but there's the running gag about so-and-so has a five-year plan and in the end he ends up working at a burger joint, right? No, but that, the idea yeah, of, I mean, it's probably Adam Sandler's only good movie. So you may, uh, I mean, if you haven't checked it out, but... Um, but I remember it from Johnny Bunko was well, like Happy Gilmore is pretty good. All right. All right. That's fair. Big yeah. Big Daddy like a funny but also emotional. Right. Um, in kind of tugs on your heartstrings as it were a little bit. I don't know. Um, those of you who have never seen either one probably have no idea what we're talking about. You know, everybody under, you know, 19, if they're listening, has no idea what we're talking about. But anyway, um, well, my 13 year old son has seen Happy Gilmore. All right. There you go. Perfect. But I think, that's, I think we do the same thing. I mean, so we talk about it as writers, but I think people do it with careers, too, where they feel like they're supposed to have that broader plan. And then when yeah, you look at yeah, people yeah, totally. who are really in their dream job, they're like, I, I don't know, I, I followed a bunch of interesting things. And then... But, but I mean, how do? You, so here's my question, because I'm, you know, you have a thirteen year old, and I think a sixteen year old, seventeen year old. So you have you're prepping for college, and probably even, I have a
0: kid in college. I've got a nineteen year old, a sixteen
1: year old, and a thirteen year old. Oh, see, I'm I'm doing terrible. I only remember two out of the three of them. Fire your research team. <laughs> but um, I mean, how do you how do you give someone career advice in that regard? Like you talked about the Steve Jobs quote earlier, but. What you do is you give them, you know,
0: what what you do is that you give them, to the extent possible, um, values and life advice, and you try to be a good role model. That's what you do. So you don't say you should go into X, Y, or Z. You should say, you know, what's really important is to do something you're genuinely interested in, because if you're going to be working really hard. You might as well work really hard at something you find interesting. And the dirty little secret is that if you do something that you're interested in. You're going to be better at it than if you're doing something you're not particularly interested in, in most cases. So, so there's that. If you go in and try to disabuse the notion that you have to have this strategic five-year plan, a la Big Daddy, and say, listen, let me tell you what happened to me. You know, I kind of hopscotch my way around in a somewhat half-assed way, but I was making decisions at the moment where I was focused on making the next thing interesting and valuable and dealing with the ambiguity of not knowing precisely where it was going to lead next. And here's a life lesson. Genuine ambiguity is actually much more useful than false certainty. Um, And then, if you, and then also just simply telling the stories. I think the more these young folks uh, hear stories um, uh, about how people navigated their lives, the more they realize that they don't have to have this very. I mean, I keep thinking of like, like, like it's chess. Like, there's a certain set of moves you have to do in order to get to the preordained destination. And, you know, what I have found, and I've said this many times, is that if you, you know, and I encourage young people, you know, teenagers, people in high school or early in college, you know, my best advice to them is to say, go, you know, I, I mentioned this before, go find someone who's doing something you're interested in, someone who you admire, someone who you look at and say, hey, wow, I would love to be doing that someday. And then ask them how they got there. And nine times out of 10, that really interesting person is going to answer that question, it's a long story, because they weren't mapping it out. They were going, they were making decisions in the moment that were right for them, that were built on a set of values and inspired by curiosity, and they were able to deal with the ambiguity that accompanies that.
1: Hmm. So, so let me ask you a broader question because I find often that, you know, life – I mean, you you, you speak to, to leaders of organizations. You speak to, to companies, but to conferences, and primarily around these sort of work issues. Do you think that applies at a broader level? So if you're leading an organization, it's sort of that three- and five-year plans. Should we kind of be more reactive? Especially – I mean, everybody loves to talk about pace of changes. Is picking up because I kind of feel like, especially in the startup community, you sort of see that, right? Yeah. yeah. How How in the world did you get here? Well, we yeah. were a podcasting company, and then we right. did text message based, you know, short, hundred and forty character right. messages. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, that's a good, really good question. I think it's a really important point. So, if you're talking about, say, specific career development plans inside of a firm, then I think that you you want to go. You, you want to have some amount of structure. That is, it's, it's all a balance. It's a balance at some level between loose and tight. Loose is this kind of free-for-all, I'm just follow my bliss and do what I want. Tight is I have a set of moves that I have to execute. And I think it's somewhere in between there. So, so, it, when, so for career development, you might be able to, in, inside of a firm, you might be able to chart out, here are three possible paths, but not say you know, there's this one path that leads to this result and I have to go through it in this sequence. I think that's dangerous. I think if you, say, I think it's also dangerous saying, "Oh, we'll just willy-nilly see what happens." That might be too too much of a risk. But I think if you say inside of a company, which I think is a little bit different, here are three possible paths that that we have in mind. Let's talk about them. Let's reevaluate them. Let's mark your progress along these things, and not be locked into following a specific turn by you know set of turn by turn instructions. And I think that's true personally. It's not, as if, you know, it's not as if I get to the end of writing a book and I say, geez, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. Maybe I should be a professional handball player. Maybe I should go become a lumberjack. Maybe I should go you know, um, you know, uh, become a deep sea fisherman. Or right? it's not like the universe is that wide. It's basically saying, huh, there is a handful of things that I'm interested in. I can sort of see these different kinds of paths out there. But I haven't committed to any single one and and I haven't I certainly haven't set out again, think about it as a GPS, these you know, the specific turn by turn instructions of how to get to a particular point.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that I, that also, you know, if you have the rigid um, structure, I mean actually again we get back to chess, right? Because while there's not one perfect sequence. The, right. the best competitors think in there's four or five different sequences and which one you pull on depends on where you are in the game, etc. And that also leaves you open to, you know, reactions from your opponent, which in this case would be reactions from life. Like I'm I'm pretty right. sure when to sell as human was done or at least you were done writing it. You, you didn't say like, oh, I'm going to go make a TV show. But you were open to that opportunity when it came well, to you. Right. Right.
0: Right. Right. There's Right. There's something to that. The other thing, the, the the limits of the chess analogy is though that I mean I think it's a good analogy. and I like the way that you explained it. The limit is that is that chess always has everybody's aiming for the same outcome. Everybody's aiming for checkmate. And so it's a little bit. It's a little. It, so I I think you're right that you go in there with a strategy, but the strategy has to then respond to the ground truth of that particular game and that particular opponent. That said, it life isn't a game where like certainly, careers you don't actually don't have an opponent. Number one, and second of all, your checkmate and my checkmate could be wildly different things. Hmm. All right. So
1: now I can't even. I guess it's like. No, playing. you can. I. Yeah. You know, I,
0: I think I think it's good. I mean, I think it's right. But it's, you know, there, there there's some there's some. Um, I the reason I the only reason I say that I'm not trying to be I might be being pedantic, but I'm not trying to I'm not trying to is that you know again I do think that there is this this view that one has to think about careers in that chess-like manner. And it's okay if that's one way to think about it. But if that's the only way you think about it, I still think it's too tight. I think you want to think about it in a little bit, almost, you know, somewhere between chess and improv theater, somewhere between there. Okay, no, that's fair. Maybe that's even fair. more toward improv theater, because improv theater requires preparation, curio- you know, curiosity, the ability to respond in that way.
1: Right, right.
0: But you don't know what the destination necessarily is in advance.
1: But yeah, and I, and I like the idea that everybody has sort of a different de- definition of winning because okay, so right. so a cross of chess and maybe like cards against humanity, where some people want to win and other people just want to make everybody laugh, right? So you know there's multiple different objectives when you go into it. Um, and I, but I think that's interesting because when you when most people plug themselves into a, a, a large organization or even a you know medium-sized or small business, there is once there's a hierarchy, there is a pull to feel like the, the there is a checkmate and it's moving up the hierarchy and if, I think that probably explains why so many people are miserable right because they thought they were supposed to go along this route and in reality it's not working.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. You're absolutely right. And this is particularly true. And and this is, but I, but on that I put the onus more on the organization than on the individual. Um, and some in, and some organizations are responding to that. For instance, what you're that that what you're saying is is very, very true, particularly in creative and technical fields. So if you have somebody who is great at writing software, someone who is a great designer, I mean, real you know, the, the and the organization loves them and wants them and wants to keep their talent, like what they might do is promote them. And a promotion could mean watching other people code or watching other people make great designs. And at some and and, and what often happens, and this a lot of the people I wrote about in Free Agent Nation were had this tale. You know they get to the point where they're no longer doing what they love to do and what they're great at, and instead are managing people who l- are doing what they love to do because that's that was the only path available to them, and so they exit. So what you see some places doing, particularly in technical comp- technical fields, is, is something like okay, inst- this person is a great uh, coder, this person's a great engineer, but this person we can this, they're they're all their alternative paths is simply moving up and, and managing stuff. So they'll create things like senior scientist, senior fellow, or something like that. Um, and so the same thing is true with teachers. You have a lot of great teachers. And what we say with many great teachers is let's make them principals. But a lot of teachers don't want to be principals. However, there's, you know, there's, at, le- at some level, you either like, stay as a, as, a, as a classroom teacher for 31 years or you become an administrator. And so some school districts are actually carving out an alternative path, which is like senior teacher, mentor teacher, something like that. So I think that inside of firms, there is a, a really, really great need for coming up with some of those um, alternative paths.
1: Yeah, no, I, to- I, I totally agree. I um when I was, you know, you, you started as a speechwriter and turned into an author. I started out as uh, I sold drugs out of the back of my car, right? I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. And and the firm that I worked with had actually figured this out, and I always remembered it, that basically, you know, if you wanted the really nice car and the great bonus package, you had to go to management. Well, they un- they actually unleashed a, well, you can actually progress up through these, you know, senior sales rep, et cetera, et cetera. And it came with the same perks that management came with. So it did sort of send that message of, like, if you want to be in the field all the time, right, we still right. sort of value you, right? Right. Okay, so I would be right. remiss, though, if at this point I didn't ask what questions you were playing around with in your head. I know that I'm probably not going to get you to tell me, tell me what the next big project is, but I'd love to just hear what questions you're playing around with in your head. Assuming you are actually playing around with questions. I know it's the holiday season as we're recording this, so maybe you're not.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm playing around with a lot of questions, none of which I necessarily want to discuss right now.
1: <laughs> Alright, that's fair
0: So, so But I'll give, you, I'll give you a hint As you know from our time together at Thinkers50 uh, I'm very interested in um, The remaking of the stages of life That people are going through right now um, you, you know, uh, there's a lot you know, There's a lot going on right now In terms of um, You know, people um, for, I mean the, the, you, you know, it used to be that in Middle class Americans were you know, education, work, retirement Now you have education, work what some people call encore careers, and then retirement. So that's one little facet. I was just talking to somebody in India yesterday who, who, who put me onto this very interesting trend among basically upper middle class Indian women who will basically start their careers in their 40s because they spent their 20s and 30s raising kids, but they realize at age 40 they're well educated. The kids are, are leaving the house and they don't want to just have a, you know a life of leisure if they're going to be alive for 40 more years, and so that's kind of, you know, we don't tend to think of a, a career beginning in, their for, in the 40s, but that's apparently what's happening among a certain sliver of the population in India. There is, um, um, there is, you know, if we think about something like adolescence. I have a kid who's 13. We think of him as an adolescent. We identify him he's in that stage of life. But very few people recognize that adolescence is not a biological concept; it's a social concept. And 110 years ago, my son would not have been an adolescent. That category didn't exist. That stage of life didn't exist. In the same way that you take a 25-year-old out there who might be living at her parent, an American 25-year-old who might be living at her, her parents' house, trying to find her foot in a very tough labor footing in a very tough labor market. Um, Right now, there's a whole, you know, there, there are scholars out there who study the stage of life called emerging adulthood, which, you know, makes a lot of people roll their eyes, but, you know, might be another a stage through which many people in the U.S. are going. And my hunch, and I, have, I don't have empirical proof of this, is that back when people suggested, at, came up with a notion of adolescence, there were some folks back then rolling your eyes, rolling their eyes, saying, what do you mean, adolescence? Thirteen Go out and work, go out and you know help out on the farm, go get you know and so, um, and so I think this remaking of the stages of life is is one facet of some of the questions that i'm, I'm
1: Asking. Well, and I, I found that interesting too because so when we when we were in London at Thinkers Fifty, you know, you and, and Marshall Goldsmith were talking, and Marshall was talking about the executives and doing something post retirement, and that's yeah. It's, it's interesting to me that we're we're totally cool talking about the prolonging on the other side of, of work, right? I don't think we've actually stretched out the career yet, right? We still sort of feel like a career exactly is thirty it. to forty. We're cool talking about this end and this end, but nobody is thinking about like, okay, well, what does it mean if you? You know, I, I think there's still sort of an ageism at 55 when you could be working till you're 80. I mean, I so I teach at a university. We we have a guy who has been teaching here for 50 years, same university, has no intention of leaving. He's had two different heart attacks over spring breaks and been back on Monday. Right? No, in- and and I don't even know what to do with that because we're so used to the idea of talking about post-retirement or delayed adulthood, but we haven't even thought about this 30 to 40 year career possibly being 40 to 50 years or 50 to 60. But that's a big deal what you're talking
0: about. If you're talking about working from, there's a big difference between working from 25 to 65 and working from 25 to 85, all right? 25 to 85 is 60 years. That's a long time. And it just seems to be inevitable that it's, that that in a 60-year path of a human being's life, let alone a human being living in a context as volatile as the context we're living in now, that there's not going to be some kind of remaking of <laughs> going on in that 60 years. I mean, to me, it's not, a, it's not a question of whether, it's just a question of
1: what. Right, and, and then compounding that is the fact that that the average tenure in one organization is shrinking, right? So everything else is getting longer, but this part is shrinking, which is I really wrote about
0: odd. this in Free Agent Nation 14 years ago, you know, about the concept of lifetime employment, exactly as you say, David. I mean, basically what you have is you have two countervailing trends. You have, uh, human, long, you have human longevity going longer and longer and longer, and you have corporate longevity, that is how, like, how long a particular company will be alive, shortening and shortening and shortening. The half life of corporations is, is shrinking, and the half life of corporations is shrinking at the same time that the life of human beings is increasing. And so, even something like that makes it, at some level, metaphysically impossible for some of us to have lifetime employment if we're going to be alive longer than the organization we're working for. Right. And so, so you have so you put all this kind of stuff into a stew pot, and there's something going on.
1: Yeah, and I think it takes that lesson that we were talking about earlier of sort of planned spontaneity. Uh, even more important because, again, if you're going to work for, for twice as long as your parents worked for and your company is going to last and companies are going to last half as, right. as long, then you you have to be more open to multiple different pathways and that sort of stuff. Right. And maybe the only, only possible solution for staying sane. So, I mean, it circles right back to that. Right. So... Um, we, um I, I, so thank you for coming and talking. It's awesome. First, first of all, to check in with you, um, you were the very first, the very second guest when we were called Leader Lab, and now that we're changing the name Radio Free Leader, you're like first on my mind to check in with and see what's going on. Plus, why? Thank you. I was fascinated with uh, the discussion at Thinkers Fifty, um, so I, I think there's a, there's a lot there to unpack. So. One thing that we're doing on the show, starting with you, starting very first episode, is uh, a lightning round of five questions that we ask all guests. I gave them to you ahead of time to give you some time to think, but a lightning round of questions to ask everybody. One, one I may have heard the answer to because you, you, know, you said the best advice that you give, but I wonder what, what's the best advice you've ever received?
0: Good question. Um, I think that the, um, the best advice I ever received I'd have to think about that uh, more because I've gotten some good advice. And so I, it's hard for me to pick a single one. But, but, but I think what might be most relevant to your listeners and certainly relevant to you and me as writers is the following. So it was, a, it was, it was, it was advice I got in the form of a question from an editor. Uh, this is almost 20 years ago now. And so I was writing a magazine piece, a long magazine piece. And I, I had finished the draft and there was just, it was off. The draft was off. And he read it, and instead of saying, you know, X, you know, you do X, Y, and Z, or cut this paragraph, he said, he said okay, here's, wh- here's what I want you to think about. Well, think about this question. What's the promise you're making to a reader, to the reader? What's the promise you're making to the reader? And I never thought about writing like that. And to me, I think that's a very powerful way to do it. Like, what's, what's the point of the exercise? You know, you have these people who are reading your article or your book. They're devoting hours, you know, for a book. You know, 20 minutes for an article, uh, they're devoting vo- a chunk of their life that they'll never get back. The opportunity cost of their spending time with you means they're not spending time with their family, they're not making money, they're not exercising. So what's the promise you're making? And that ended up being really powerful for me in thinking about my writing. And, and I think it's the same thing true in any kind of, you know, I think it's true for leaders and I think it's true for entrepreneurs. What's the promise you're making to your customers? What's the promise you're making to the people you're leading? And I found that really sterling advice.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, um, I had actually just thought about working on the keynote that comes with this sort of book, you know, the, the structured keynote that'll be the one people um, align with the new book that I've written. And that the person that I'm working with came back to that question actually very often. It's like, what are people, what's the better future that people will get if they listen to That's a good to you, way to put right? it. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: what That's is a-, a good question, too. That's a really good question, too. I mean... Um, yeah, that's it's interesting. That's it's it's a similar. It's almost the other side of the coin of that question. The question, "What's the promise you're making?" is kind of inwardly directed, right. and "What's the better future?" is more outwardly directed. But yeah. they, it's a it's a great question too.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's an average day look like for you? I'd imagine there's probably not one, but what's an average day look like for you?
0: Well, the av- I mean, an average day when I'm writing and researching is is actually pretty average and pretty predictable by design. Uh, let's take let's take a writing day when I'm writing a working on a book in earnest or writing a magazine article. Um, What I will do is I will come to my office from which I am speaking to you right at this moment. Uh, My office is 22 steps outside of my back door of my house in a converted one-car garage. And what I will do is I will come into my office and I will give myself a word count. And I will say, today you have to write, you're writing 500 words or 600 words, not anything massive. I'm a very, very slow writer. So that's a big hurdle for me. So 500 words, 600 words. And then I will not do anything else until I hit that, um, until I hit that word count. So some days I will hit it at, let's say, I don't get into my office insanely early or insanely late, you know, 8.30, 9, somewhere around there. Um, I will um, sometimes, let's say I get in at 9, start working at 9. What this means is that I turn off my email, turn off everything else, don't answer email don't answer the phone, et cetera, et cetera. And I will, I will go until I hit that word count. And sometimes I hit that word count by 11. Uh, sometimes I don't hit it by until 1. Um, there have been days, no joke, <laughs> where I haven't hit it till 6 or 7 in the evening. And, but what I will do is, is not do anything else until I hit that number. And the, the, the reason for that is that, let's say you do 600 words a day. If you do 600 words a day, for 100 days, you have 60,000 words. That's the beginning of a first draft. And so I take a very, very bricklayer mentality for, for that kind of work. And I carve out the morning to do it because that's my best time for working. Then, in the afternoons, assuming I've hit my number, I will do the other things that, that involve um, sort of the day-to-day administration operation of a business and a life so i will then respond to the emails i will then uh, schedule all my, my phone calls and meetings uh and i almost will always i almost always will I try to i don't always do it but when i'm writing i actually am pretty good about it when i'm writing uh, i try to exercise just about every day um and usually in the usually in the afternoon um you know I'm an afternoon exerciser not a morning exerciser or an evening exerciser which is one of the great virtues of working for myself so that I can just like like here we are we're talking now at 2:30 at 3:30 I'm going to go for a run um so that and then I have dinner with my family and then I usually in the evening I will either depending on either catch up on email and or read hmm it's an exciting life
1: so that I mean that so that begs actually a, a writer hack question. Do you Scribner when you write, or do you do it in Word and just check the word count often?
0: I do it in um, I do it in Word and check the word count.
1: Uh, I, I'm going to try and convince you at some point to test out Scribner. It has ha- a, everybody
0: had ha- everybody's told me that. I try uh, maybe I'll give it a second a second try. The, but
1: I can't edit in it. But I love when I'm trying to hit my word count goal that it just tracks it for me and I can hit Command Shift T at any time and see a progress bar right, which is just reaffirming to me, right? It's that, it's Teresa Mabule. it's the progress principle, right? I, I just need that. Yeah, you can online. do that on Word just as well, too. Well, that's true. That's true. Not um, all, not,
0: there's no progress bar, but there's a, if
1: you can do math, there's a progress bar in your head. <laughs> well, see, if I could do math, I don't know that I would be a writer, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, no, so your, your answer to the, uh, you know, the, how you spend your evenings actually begs the is perfect uh, bridge to the third question. What are you reading right now?
0: Let's see. At the moment, uh, I am – well, I'll tell you what I just finished. I just finished this book, The Galleys of – well, you, you're, this is all audio now, but you can see me. Yeah. The, the Galleys of this book right here called Presence by Amy Cuddy. She's the power-posing, Wonder woman pose, Harvard Business School professor. Some really, really interesting research on power and self-confidence. Uh, a very interesting
1: book. Yeah, no, that's actually I'm actually in the middle of reading that uh, right now too. I talk I talked her out of the galley. I don't just automatically get drop shift important people like Amy's books, but I can beg for them. And uh, I thought the I actually I kept reading, I reread the warmth and competence piece. I think it's in the third chapter, like three or four times, about how people tend to want to feel um, feel competent, want to prove their competence, but in reality, we judge a person's warmth before we judge their confidence.
0: Because I, I believe, I believe, I believe in. Because I've been, I've been trying to be uh, competent and, and and frosty my whole life, so it hasn't really worked all that well. And now I have a reason,
1: right, to try and get a little bit warmer. Like right, see, bit. and I've been and I've been trying to be warm my whole life because I'm totally incompetent, right. So if I'm just warm enough, people will. Figure that it out. might work
0: though. What's the, what the research suggests is that. But you know what's so funny is that um, what I always think about on that research is that it. You know, there's this old kind of very syrupy piece of advice that I've heard, you know, from like, you know, uh, you see it a little bit in leadership advice. You see it a little bit in teachers scolding children, whatever. And it's this old adage, people don't, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care.
1: Yeah. It yeah. turns out that might be true. Right. No, I know. Right. So it's so yeah. it's so cliche to hear it. I mean, like your John Maxwell's of the world will say it over and over and over again. And then you're like, oh, darn, it's cliche, but OK, it might have. A-. What I think is interesting about it, though, is the implication. I mean, that people try and prove competence first, that our default yeah. mechanism when interacting right. with other people is to try right. and prove competence first. Like the the warmth piece makes makes sense and jives all that stuff. What was what was most intriguing to me was, oh, shoot, how often am I trying to look intelligent, look like I know what I'm doing when in reality, what people really want to perceive first is that I actually care, you know, and even if well,
0: I I think that, you know, when I, when I read that stuff, um, um, and I, and I, I can't remember. yes yeah, So when I read that research, whether it's in the Cuddy book or, or elsewhere, I can't remember where, uh, my first thought was actually about physicians because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you, you know, at some level you, in your rational head, you say, I want a physician who is like the best in his, if you have a serious problem, a physician who is the best in her field, but maybe you don't actually, I'm wondering whether there's, whether patients adhere to the advice those who demonstrate warmth before competence rather than those the advice of those who simply demonstrate competence
1: so i don't know it from an adherence thing but i remember long ago because i think it was in blink that gladwell talked about people don't sue the physician that screwed up they sue the physician they didn't like and my you know at the time my wife was in medical school so i would like hey you should pay attention to this of course she chose er doctor which an er might be the one place where warmth and competence, like, don't merge. Like, what you want is to just get the heck out of there. But yeah, I think I mean, even then it probably does. Depending on how dire the
0: how, how dire the circumstances. I know there there is some research showing um, that people are less likely to sue a doctor when the doctor apologizes for the mistake.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I swear it's in. Uh, I'll have to go back and look, but I swear I remember it from something Gladwell wrote about about but, actual yeah. lawsuits. And they don't, you know, the one that the one that's actually incompetent doesn't get sued. It's the one that's not warm, right? Um, so, so here's our, our, my my favorite question to ask: What do you believe that most people don't?
0: Huh? I, I find that a really challenging question um, because you know my instinct on the spot is to set up a straw man of other people's beliefs and then knock it down. So I'm trying not to do that.
1: Well, I can phrase it a different way. If, if I yeah. think about what, what arguments do you advance that you feel like get the most resistance of the things that you speak on, of the things that you talk about, what, what arguments get the most resistance?
0: Uh, yeah, I, um, that's a nice way to rephrase it. I, I think that maybe not resistance, but I think there's a kind of latent skepticism in that Um, it really is a claim about human nature, an embedded claim about human nature, because I truly believe that human nature is to be curious, autonomous, self-motivated, and engaged. I think that's our natural state. Now, I don't think everybody is that way, but I think that the reason they're not that way is not because that's not the nature of human beings, but because circumstance, context, environment creates patterns of behavior that are more, that, 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 that stifle curiosity, that limit autonomy, that inhibit self-direction. Um, but I really, and, and I've gotten into some discussions with people. Now, it's a harder, it's a harder, you know, people are polite. So, and and what I'm arguing is actually for a better version of human nature. So... But I actually believe it as the empirical truth. So I think that I think it's that. It's that I really do believe that human nature deep down is autonomous, curious, and engaged. And that if we begin with that premise in how we deal with people, uh, we'll be better off. Hmm. And there are a lot of people who say that the response to that is basically well, some people are that way, but other people are not. And I, my response to that is, well, that's circumstance. And their response to that is, that no, some people are this way, some people are that way. And I just don't believe that. I think that human nature is, among person, from person to person, across cultures, across genders, etc., is consistent. And I do think that our natural state is to be curious and self-directed.
1: I think, too, what compounds it is that the broader industrial system that we've been relying on for like 150 years yeah, requires yeah. them to not be right? So exactly. The- exactly. I agree with that. And so, but the question is, but it's really a question of,
0: it's really a question of what, what are people's, what are, what are, what are people's natures? And you see a little bit of pushback on this, say, in the work on motivation, where you say, the goal is to put people in settings where they're autonomous, put people in settings where they can make progress and achieve mastery, put people in, set- in settings where they know why they're doing something, not merely how to do it. And a response to that, not, it's not, the most pro- prevalent response to that is, "Well, is well, that's good for some people, but other people just aren't like that, and they're really making an embedded claim about human nature that I think is wrong."
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's
0: a pretty widespread. It's a pretty widespread. Uh, it's a pretty widespread belief.
1: No, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I mean, it's part of in, in uh, the new book. it's part of sort of taking aim of that, is we should probably take aim at the broader system that demands it of them because we're we're training people to think that they're a way that they're not. Right, Right. and and what they actually are is exactly that. No, I love it. So uh, you're not allowed to say people don't know how much you care, uh, or don't don't care how much you know. To this broader, to this next question, but the new the new name of the show is Radio Free Leader. In in your view, you speak to a ton of them every year. What makes someone a leader? Um, I think it's a a clear vision,
0: humility, and the willingness to listen. Okay I really so do. so in the yeah, willingness so, so, to listen so so, so so I so I'm ha- so, I, so I'm leaning toward the I'm leaning toward the um I'm leaning toward the the softer side of it. So I guess what I would say and let me add a fourth one. Let me let me let me recast it. So I would say uh, a clear vision, uh humility,
1: the willingness to listen
0: and high expectations. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I like it. I like it. And it actually balances that warmth and competence piece, the willingness to listen. Oh, nice point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Very good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, perfect. That's perfect. Well, Daniel Pink, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Uh, It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.